a congressional primary amid protests and a pandemic. I'm Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. And I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. And now let's bring on the line Jonathan Herzog. Uh, Jonathan, welcome to Max and Murphy here on WBAI. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, just tell us, uh, give a, give us a, the quick version of uh, of your resume. What you know, what brings you to this run? What work have you done? Um, you know, what gives you some sense of qualifications to be a member of Congress? Absolutely. Well, thank you again. My name sure. is Jonathan Herzog. I'm the son of immigrants, born and raised in New York's 10th District, on the border of Hell's Kitchen and the Upper West Side. I'm a civil rights organizer and legal advocate endorsed by Andrew Yang. With experience in the movements combating dark money in politics, poverty, and hate. And I'm running for Congress because our liberal democracy is being torn to shreds. I'm running because we've entered a, a new Great Depression with more than 100,000 Americans dead, nearly twice the number that died in the Vietnam War, and Congress has been on recess. I'm running for Congress because hate crimes in New York doubled last year alone. Two-thirds were anti-Semitic. We need a representative at the vanguard of the civil rights fights of this era. We need a representative who understands the existential 21st century crises we're facing and has the right vision, experience, and priorities to lead, including on a universal basic income, a data bill of rights, and a multi-trillion dollar great rebuild of our infrastructure, education, and a restoration of the common good. Well, thank you. Well, as you, yeah, there was a, uh, the elevator has reached its floor and we're, we're getting <laughs> off. Uh, the, you know, the, it struck me that the campaign that you're in now, I mean, you, you began running obviously many, many months ago and the whole world obviously seems like it has changed with COVID-19 and, and then recently the renewed and very passionate conversation about policing and racism and uh, protest and violence in our city and, and around the country. Given that, if, if you were in office, we would hope that you would react to that and, and propose something or, or change something and what your, your focus is based on, on those new and emerging um, threats and conversations in the city. But as a candidate, what effect has the pandemic and more recently the renewed conversation about policing, what effect has that had on your candidacy and on the ideas you think will bring to Washington, on the issues you're emphasizing? Has it changed you at all? I think we're in the midst of a crisis on top of a crisis on top of a crisis. And I mean, just look at the tragic George Floyd murder where this is downstream of a counterfeit $20 bill. So talk is cheap and we don't have time for any more lip service. Um, you know, there's a saying that when America catches a cold, black people get the flu. Well, now when we get coronavirus, black people die. Um, and that includes the structural racism that has been baked into our system. So yes, we need transformative structural reform, beginning with a federal standard limiting the use of force, prohibiting chokeholds and neckholds, demilitarizing law enforcement, uh, developing a national public database covering violations and license revocation, an end to qualified immunity. But all of this, when it comes to structural policing reform and demilitarization, is not enough because 
again, this was the case of a counterfeit $20 bill. The average net worth of a black household is one-tenth that of a white household. This is pre-COVID, pre-pandemic. Black mothers were three times more likely to die from complications of childbirth pre-COVID. And even though households of color are expected to reach a majority by 2043, the median net worth of the black community is projected to be zero by 2053. This was all before COVID, before 40 million Americans filed for unemployment, 40% of which will be permanently lost. So this moment requires true transformative structural change, not silence, not lip service, not inaction. And that's exactly how I would plan to lead as a representative for this district. So say a little bit more about um, what that leadership would look like in terms of the recovery. What are some things that you think um, Congress needs to do here uh, this year uh, into next year? Um, you know, what are some of the key pieces of legislation that you would either be uh, jumping onto and, and trying to get over the finish line or you would be proposing um, if you if you are uh, uh, victorious here? Well, first and foremost, I've already drafted the Freedom Dividend Bill, which is a universal basic income of $2,000 a month for every American adult and $1,000 a month for every American child for the duration of the pandemic and $1,000 for every adult and $500 for every child in perpetuity thereafter. And this is a fundamental distinction, a fundamental contrast, where instead of bailing out the banks, we need to bail out the people. And if you look at, although Congress has been on recess, they returned to session to pass a multi-trillion dollar stimulus bill, primarily that went to bail out multinational firms, a tiny fraction of it that went to bail out people. And we're talking about a pandemic and a moment that has caused and is causing a 9-11 death toll every single day with more than 40 million Americans, again, who are unemployed and if New York had shut down just 10 days sooner, up to 80% of all deaths, according to the former CDC director, could have been avoided. We failed to implement not only testing and contact tracing at any scale, but we failed to deliver recurring cash relief to the tens of millions of Americans who, can, who are unemployed and can't make ends meet. And we have to remember, before COVID, in the 10th district, the west side of Manhattan and South Brooklyn, the world's financial capital, one in six people were living in poverty. Before COVID, one in five storefronts in the 10th district were closing. And before COVID, American life expectancy had declined for three years in a row due to deaths of despair from suicides and drug overdoses. So COVID and what we're experiencing now with the pandemic is 10 years of change in 10 weeks, yes. But what we've seen is a buildup for decades now of a system that no longer works for the majority of Americans. So our focus on the show, uh, because Ben and I are obsessed with it, is mainly on New York City and to some extent New York State, but obviously uh, national policy is going to be affected by what someone like you will do in Congress, and Congress does have, the House does have obviously a role in foreign policy too, although we rarely discuss it here. But I'm curious, rather than, than me picking sort of my pet foreign policy issue and putting you on the spot, what's a foreign policy issue that really matters to you and what's your position on it? What do you want to do about it? 
Absolutely. And I'll say just first and foremost, you know, we, we think of ourselves in New York and in the 10th district in many ways as the beneficiaries of this winner take all economy, of these multi decade trends of global, of automation and globalization. And in many ways, we are. But the epidemic of loneliness, anxiety, and depression eats at our souls just the same. Um, and when I talked to uh, a senior executive at a top firm, um, a constituent in the district, they, they told me they're terrified for the future their daughter will inherit. They're sending her to coding boot camp because they know that the jobs of the future are being automated away. But they worry that won't be enough. So we consider ourselves the winner in this 21st century economy, but it turns out the winners also perceive themselves as losers. And in the context of foreign policy, one of the biggest opportunities for the United States and for our congressional leadership to drive forward is in building a new world data organization around establishing fundamental data bill of rights and data property rights. Because we have to understand what Yuval Harari told us last year which is whoever controls the algorithm is the real government. And part of the reason that we see liberal democracy and our economy being torn to shreds is that right here in New York, in the United States and across the globe, tens of millions of the most common jobs are being blasted away. And we're finding scapegoats. The, the human mind, the human condition is constantly searching for scapegoats. So building a new world data organization that, establish, that establishes fundamental data property rights is the direction we have to lead in the context of foreign policy. So you're running in a, in a primary here against an incumbent. Obviously, um, candidates do that all the time. But, you know, in uh, uh, each case, the, the case against the incumbent is different. Uh, and you have to make that case to voters in this district that, you know, that Representative Nadler hasn't gotten the job done well enough that he needs to be replaced. Um, what's that pitch? What is what's the case against um, the, the representative that you're hoping to unseat here in the Democratic primary? Unfortunately, this race doesn't have much to do with Congressman Nadler, because unfortunately, he's largely been asleep at the switch as these multi-decade trends have been unfolding. And the 10th district happens to have the largest LGBTQ population in the country and also one of the largest Jewish communities in the country. And I didn't set out to, to run for Congress. I reached out to our elected officials, our politicians, our journalists and academics to sound the alarm about the urgency of the crises we were facing. And I learned we had to build the grassroots movement from the bottom up ourselves. But for the past two decades, American Jews have watched anti-Semitism reemerge around the world with some concern, but also perhaps with some condescension. We have been the luckiest diaspora in history. But what we've seen is that hate crimes last year in New York doubled. More than two thirds were anti-Semitic. And so I'm, I'm, try, I'm, I'm trying to can you give, give us a little clarity in terms of where you see Representative Nadler falling short on these issues? Can you be a little more clear on sort of the, this case that you want to make against his, um, you know, deserving another term? Yes, because the structural issues we're facing, anti-Semitism resurfaces in conditions of political and economic unrest. 
when the angry, the shortchanged, and the scared look for simple explanations. So unfortunately, the structural challenges we're facing with this automation wave and with this pandemic, the congressman has been asleep at the switch. And you don't have to even look back at a decade ago during the financial crisis. You look back to the fact that Congress has been on recess. Congressman Nadler co-sponsored the HEROES Act, a multi-trillion dollar bailout that bailed out large multinational firms and left tens of millions of Americans by the wayside. This is in the midst of a new Great Depression. The reason this is so tightly related to the resurfacing of anti-Semitism is in part, if we look at the last Great Depression, what you see in Germany beginning in 1928 is a one-to-one correlation in the wake of the Great Depression with a rise in far-right populism and the Nazi vote share in the Reichstag, correlated to a one-to-one increase in unemployment. The Federal Reserve Bank said just a few weeks ago, we expect 32% unemployment here, right here, right now, in 2020 in the United States. These structural crises are completely interlinked, and we need leadership that understands them and has a real vision and set of priorities to tackle them. So tell me, you know, uh, when we look at the situation on the streets this week here in New York City, there's a lot of frustration, obviously, anger, uh, pain. And among some of the young people who are protesting, one surmises that some of them would, would look at an election and say, this has nothing to do with me, that electoral politics and traditional government have failed to solve problems for 40, 60, 100 years. What would you say to a young person that's lost faith? Um, what would you say to someone like that to try to encourage them, maybe not necessarily to vote for you, but to vote? Why, does, why should politics matter and government matter to someone who feels as though it's been nothing but a history of failure? The first thing I'll say is, I hear you. I get it. <laughs> I totally understand it. Just in the past week alone, amidst this crisis, the New York State Democratic Party, our elected officials, our party leadership, instead of contact tracing or implementing testing or shutting down the city when public health experts demanded they do, they tried to cancel the primary. So I, so I tell you know to anyone who's cynical or concerned or fearful that their vote doesn't matter, oh, your vote matters. In fact, your elected officials were so scared of how much your vote mattered that they spent weeks in federal court losing. (laughs) It's just to try to cancel that primary election. So I've now been at the heart of presidential politics, at the heart of New York congressional politics. And let me tell you from the inside, seeing how the sausage is made, things are 10 or 100 times worse than you could ever imagine. But for the most part, that power is an illusion. There is no one in the wings There's no one out there to save us but ourselves. And I tell you this with concrete conviction, because when I joined the founding team that built Andrew Yang's presidential campaign, I joined a team of five people for a campaign that had no money, no polls, no media coverage, and was bankrupt. When national support for universal basic income was in the low double digits or single digits. Now, more than 80% of the country supports a universal basic income or a version thereof during this pandemic and thereafter. The only agents of change that we can rely upon is ourselves. We are the saviors and the change makers that we seek. 
Can you uh, what 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 poll are you referring to there with that eighty percent? So public polling now shows that more than eighty percent of Americans support recurring cash relief, a version of universal basic income uh-huh. during That's the pandemic. Uh-huh. During right during okay. Um, so we've, we've got a few minutes left with you. I want to um, try to hit a couple quick things. Um, one of them. You know, we've talked uh, quite a bit, you know, about sort of substance here. I'm, I'm curious also about style when it comes to a member of the House of Representatives. You know, a lot of, um, you know, the way that people get things done is through the sort of approach to leadership that they take. Can you tell us a little bit about if you're elected to uh, represent this seat in Congress? You know, what kind of elected official you'd be? Would you be, you know, sort of um, a solid member of the rank and file of the Democratic conference? Would you try to be... Uh, you know, sort of throwing some some uh, rhetorical bombs from the outside at your party and the other party. You know, what kind of what kind of representative would you be? I think one of the top line goals is to have a federal government and a Congress representatives from New York who are not only of by from and from born and raised in the district, but also to skate to where the puck is going, not where it is. So again, I've already drafted the freedom dividend bill that I would hope to bring to the floor and pass in Congress. And the goal is to bring a wave of freedom Democrats, of Democrats who are committed to deep freedom, not shallow equality, committed to raising the floor, not lowering the ceiling, and committed to building the future and not finding others to blame. We don't have to settle for the far right or the far left populist politics of this era. We don't have to settle for anything less than a transformative set of policies that builds a human-centered economy that works for us. And that is where I would hope to lead, is to actually bring forth a policy vision where everyone can see themselves included in. Okay. Uh, Jonathan Herzog, we appreciate your time. Uh, We wish you luck on the campaign trail. We'll certainly be watching uh, as the rest of this campaign in New York's 10th Congressional District unfolds. Uh, Thanks for taking some time with us and uh, be safe out there. Thank you both so much for your great work. Please take care, stay safe. And to everyone out there, know that again, your vote is so critical. They would not be fighting to try to cancel primary. We we agree. We're we're always uh, (laughs) always encouraging people on this show. You better better get out there and vote. Thanks a lot, Jonathan. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you so much. Thank you. so, Jared, um, we've heard from the two challengers here to Representative Jerry Nadler. Uh, any thoughts, generally speaking, about the two conversations that we've had? Well, obviously, I wish we had been able to go ahead with the debate because it would be uh, great, I think, for voters and, and for us to see the candidates um, compare themselves more directly and to hear Representative Nadler talk about his background. I thought it was interesting, you know, two people running against Nadler with very different um, types of critiques. Uh, Herzog basically saying that Nadler is not part of the conversation, that this is bigger than him. Um, Boylan talking about the fact that Nadler has has not done enough to to warrant keeping the job. Um, I did find one thing I, I so often wish we have more time on this show to talk to folks. Uh, the point that Ms. Boylan made at the end about turnout and what she suspects mm-hmm. might be some interesting patterns. I would really have loved to have dug into that because that is, uh, as we often talk about on the show, a fascinating part of politics in this particular election, it's going to be especially fascinating or fraught. Um, but I would I would like to know more about what she suspects is going to happen. And uh, I suppose we'll see the proof will be in the pudding in a few weeks. 
Yeah, you know, maybe we can spend a little bit of time on this next week, perhaps. Um, but, you know, there's some serious questions. We've actually been trying to look at, into them at Gotham Gazette about what turnout is going to look like. And it, it is, um, you know, as a matter of fact, it's some of these Manhattan districts where, you know, people left for family, uh, you know, other families' homes during the pandemic. They left for their second homes. You know, some of these types of things where who knows what's going to happen? I mean, you know, people might have done some mail forwarding to get their absentee ballot or something like that. But, you know, there could be some real issues with with turnout, especially for some of the folks that incumbents have relied on for for election after election to keep them in office. I mean, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens with some of these races. On the flip side of that, I do think, you know, incumbents have a major advantage in the fact that campaigning has been curtailed so much because of the pandemic, um, at least, you know, traditional ways of campaigning. And, you know, maybe people are spending more time online. So some of these challengers can hit even more of their potential voters who are probably, you know, younger. Um, but, you know, it's a real real question mark about the advantages and disadvantages for challengers and incumbents of what's been going on. Um, but I also thought, you know, these two challengers, like other challengers, you know, they're sort of talking about this theme of generational change and, and the need for, you know, sort of a new perspective on leadership. And that's always interesting to hear younger candidates try to make the case. 